everyone. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is Light It Up. I'm joined by Lucy Della, our resident engineer and science queen, to shine a light on Lighthouse Character, which is all about the lens. Welcome back, Lucy. Thank you so much, Mandy. Um, I do love the title of a science queen. I will self-proclaim that title from now on. You earn it. You are it. You're already living it. So last episode, we spoke a lot about plastic, the Tupperware company, the Kevlar vest. We switched gears to glass. What do you know about glass? You know, how hard is it to make glass, particularly into this beautiful lens structure? Um, I did do a little bit of research on the um, specific lens that um, Ian talked about in the last one, the Fresnel lens. And I found it fascinating, the shape of it, because I I said in the last one, I think in my mind, I sort of was picturing it just like a, a concave sort of structure, a big sort of circular concave structure that would just emit the light out sort of. You, I'm imagining when you say that, like a contact lens. If I imagine yes. my contact lens inside and outside. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what I had in my mind because I just, as I said before, I'd never really considered it. But we are very wrong, Mandy. You and I are, we're common folk among these glass experts. The way that they did it, so it's like a 2.5 metre tall lens and it's got multiple ones that sort of go around in a circle so that when the lens is moving around, the light gives that flashing appearance as we spoke about in the last episode. But the way it works is there's sort of a, the light source sits in the middle of the glass, I don't call it a glass cage, but it's like it's sort of like. Prism? Yeah, like enveloped around it, I guess. And the middle segment is a circle and that is concave. So the light will hit it um, and go out. And then moving out from the top and the bottom of that middle section is sort of smaller prisms that like a jagged fragment increasing in size as it goes up. So the light basically hits it at an upwards angle and then it will get parallel to the ground out. So you have this single light source that then just gets magnified from all these prisms moving out. And it's just all based on, yeah, the physics and the light optics. And it would have taken a lot of calculations. Just really fascinating to me. I would encourage everyone to go and Google what it looks like because it's really hard to describe it. So, so far in this part, we've talked about the Tupperware company and how they made the plastic container at least for some of the more modern light house lights. We've talked about Fresnel and you've given us that beautiful image of how it actually works. Finally, we shine a light on the Chance Brothers. It's another story in itself. Chance Brothers who produced these lights is a really interesting book. If you, you know much about the Chance it. Brothers? I've got a book here of the history of them. And uh, they sort of produced something like four and a half thousand lighthouses or lenses. And not only that, because as you probably realised, England back in the early days ruled the waves as far as ships was concerned. So everywhere the English ships went, like Japan and the Middle East and all these, because they wanted to save their ships, they actually built half the lighthouses in Japan. And all around the world, lighthouses were built by the British, which is unusual. There's a lot of Japanese ones, but a lot of them now were built by English because they were trying to protect their own shipping. As I said, the ruled the waves. And it's like Tasmania, all the ships that came around the bottom end and came into Hobart, there used to be hundreds and hundreds. Now, we don't have a ship. The only ships that come into Hobart now are cruise ships. Mm. And we haven't had too many of them lately. 
for, for obvious reasons. <laughs> Well, they so, probably don't need lighthouses to navigate them in anymore. They don't. They don't. So it's a, it's, yeah. it's a dying thing. But In today's episode, we get to speak to Lighthouse Royalty, Mary Isles, a descendant of the Chance Brothers. Now, for some reason, you are listening to your first episode of Light It Up. For some reason, you have chanced on part seven, randomly selected in the middle, Chance Brothers Company was a glassworks company originally based in Smethwick in West Midlands in England. They were a leading glass manufacturer and a pioneer of British glassmaking technology. They made the first order lights, the biggest ones we have in Australia. Do you know many companies that make glass? Could you name some famous glass companies? I think the answer to that is unequivocally no. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the average person is going to say no to that question, I believe. Believe it or not, back in the day, there was a famous glass company. I reckon they would be like the Dyson of vacuum cleaners, Chance Brothers wow. so, of glass. So the common folk walking around the streets would would have known about this company? Yes, they would have. Definitely within the lighthouse community, they were, particularly in Australia and our link to the UK, they were... The guys, they were the glass guys who made the lighthouse lenses. But back in the UK, they made more than lenses. They made Crystal Palace, which is that building literally sheathed in in glass. They also provided the glass for the face of Big Ben. So they were a big deal. Wow. They were, yeah, big dogs, big fish in a small pond. I'm delighted to be able to speak to a living relation of the Chance Brothers that we've heard about. They are probably one of the most famous companies I've come across so far. Yes. Well, um, I'm the, I think it's great, 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 might be another great granddaughter of James Timmins Chance. So my family have been in the glass business since the 1700s. And uh, James Timmins uh, was the primary instigator and inventor of, um, of developing the, the process for making, making the chance uh, lenses, that's the lighthouse lenses. My history is a, is a bit of a weird one because um, I was brought up by my father's side of the family, who's another strange story again, in England. And I left England when I was 23 in 1973 um, to come as far away from home as I possibly could. <laughs> so I came to Australia and um, I didn't really know much about my grandfather because he was still working um, at Chance Brothers. I didn't really know very much about what he actually did at the factory other than that it was a glass factory. I, I knew him as my grandfather. He was a, a rather engaging man. Um, he was very influential in helping his, and I think it was 20 grandchildren. I'm not quite sure that he managed them all, but he helped our various parents with our education, um, along with uh, being the last um, general manager or chairman, I can't quite remember his exact title, of Chance uh, Brothers in, in England. So when I first arrived here, and I, I was a hippie, I came here in uh, 1973, I drove overland from 
England to, I got as far as India, um, but went through the Middle East and Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and, and places that really nowadays are so sad that whenever I see anything about any of those countries, I think, oh my God, I was so lucky to have been able to uh, visit those places. But I arrived here as a, as a hippie and within a few weeks I realised I couldn't be a hippie anymore. I had to get a real job. <laughs> um, <laughs> the dream was over once, you know. Yeah, the dream was over, you know. <laughs> um, so I'd been in England, I'd been um, in publishing, um, not, not publishing as such, but in the advertising department of, of um, the Financial Times and Vogue magazine and a couple of other publications. So I tried to get a job here in Australia um, in, in the same field. But uh, w- when I arrived here, I had a, more of an English accent than I've got now. And I had rather a long double barreled name. And um, nobody sort of quite understood what I was talking about. <laughs> speaking a foreign language, I think. Oh, God. <laughs> Could you even yes, understand anybody else speaking, you know, no, with the Aussie no. twang? Yeah. So eventually I got a job and, uh, and I sort of, in inverted commas, settled down. And, and then um, my cousin, so this is my first cousin, you ask how we're related and how many of us are still going. Well, I have, I think there's, a, there's about 20 first cousins on the chance side of my family. And uh, Toby Chance uh, wrote a book on lighthouses. I didn't actually realise how the Chance family were involved. So I read the book. Um, Toby very kindly sent me a copy. And I thought, hang on a second, there are lighthouses in Australia. So I started to investigate lighthouses in Australia. And, of course, most of the lighthouses in Australia were... Uh, either um, the lens was manufactured in Birmingham um, and in the case of some lighthouses, the iron or steel uh, construction um, was also made in the factory and then was shipped out to Australia like a, like a Meccano set. I call myself a ferologist, which is um, uh, a person who's a bit of a nerd on, on lighthouses. I certainly have visited a lot of them, um, but I have visited a few, and 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 they're just wonderful. And I've referred to them just in a light-hearted way as um, Grandpa's lighthouses. <laughs> so um, I think that's I a fair a enough uh, connection. Almost the pioneer yeah. of most of the lenses that we have in Australia, yeah. like you say. And it's quite interesting, actually, that you're um, the genesis of your understanding of how deeply involved your family has been oh. with the lenses came from a, a you know maybe a later book written by your cousin Absolutely. yeah well I mean the thrill was probably going I can't remember which was my first lighthouse that I visited I think it might have been it might have been Cape Shank I can't quite remember but I remember um going on a on the tour up up the lighthouse and the guy who was the guide was an ex-lighthouse keeper and he was very enthusiastic and we were up there my husband and I were up at the top of the lighthouse chatting away to him and I said to him oh well I'm actually a chance and um, he nearly fell over and he got terribly excited and he knew more about 
our family or my family uh, much more than I did about lighthouses. And he had a book and he had folders and pictures and stories. And it was just wonderful. So your royalty, uh, I think, in the lighthouse uh, world, it would have been like well, meeting almost, you know, the Princess Di from um, have, the royal family. <laughs> well, I have to say that um, as we were talking, some other people came up the lighthouse for a tour. And uh, I said, oh, look, thank you so much for your time. I'll get out of the way. And he said, exactly the same. He said, oh, no, you're royalty. <laughs> and I was very, I was very um, flattered. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure the Chance Brothers almost comes up in uh, every conversation that I have just because, one, obviously the lens is so integral to the light station. But secondly, Chance Brothers are, you know, the main supplier. Um, do you know why your, your family's, company was able to achieve such widespread success I imagine you know you weren't the only glass manufacturers let alone no, but, but, yeah. but we were the we were the pioneers um and that was the that was the critical thing there were various um manufacturing processes which um the the family developed um and in fact not not just um lighthouse lenses um but uh, plate glass. So you've heard of um, Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace was this enormous, like a convention center um, for a, a world trade fair, and uh, the, the Crystal Palace was was an iron and glass construction in in the Victorian times, and that was built with Chance Glass, and Chance developed the. Um, plate glass that was used in that construction and then of course it was used in all sorts of other applications not just for the for the crystal palace but for windows um, there's there's chance glass in buckingham palace um, the clock face for big ben which is being renovated at the moment um, was also chance glass which was bombed in the uh, second world war and replaced um, and it's now being replaced with other glass, and uh, now it's being replaced back with with chance glass. So the, the the glass manufacturing process was the thing that got that company um, their their uh, fame. And if you have a look at the history of um, Birmingham and and the industrial Re revolution, the chance was very. Um, significant Chance Brothers was very significant in in the manufacture of glass in in a big way. Um, during the wars, they also built enormous amounts of glass for um, searchlights, and uh, there was domestic glass as well. So you know, uh, plates and saucers and glasses and um, windows. That um, there are just masses of different. Um, uh, um, I can't think of the right word, um, different applications of glass that, that Chance was into. So they were a very big company. And in fact, the, the site where the factory is, and it still exists in Birmingham, is where the Chance brothers are trying to, the current trust is trying to redevelop that into a, into a museum or a, a tourist attraction. And uh, I think some of the original plans, which are still in place, they're just waiting for funding, um, is to actually put a lighthouse in Birmingham <laughs> on the old site. <laughs> so um, that's quite fun. 
Yeah. That's an amazing history. You know, if I think about how pivotal and important glass is today, it's amazing that, you know, your family's company were the, the pioneers of plate glass and that they did branch yeah. out into lighthouse lenses, which I imagine back then would have actually been quite a big, you know, business unit to get into given the amount of shipping yeah. going on in the world. Yeah. Going back to what other glass in Australia, I discovered the most amazing um, piece of glass. There's a building in, Victor- in uh, Melbourne. So ch- chance exists in all sorts of different um, different applications worldwide. Um, there are certainly many collectors of the domestic glass. Um, there's a there's a little glass vase which is called a handkerchief vase and if you have a look on that on google you'll find handkerchief chance handkerchief glass uh, vases are quite um are, are quite pretty and they're sought after and they're sold on ebay and that sort of thing <laughs> oh amazing yeah. so you know they, they made anything from you know large large sheets of plate glass for you know crystal palace and they even made yes. little vases absolutely and sunglasses and um uh window glass um uh, glass for there's some old advertisements which were if you were a welder you know welding uh, steel or metal you had to have a, a big face mask and the face mask glass was made by chance <laughs> yeah. oh wow how ingenious almost the application yeah. of glass everywhere In what form does chance brothers exist today well it sort of doesn't which is a bit sad. Um, Pilkington Brothers, which is still going, um, acquired about 50% of the shareholding in 1945. And um, Chance set up a small plant in Malvern, Worcestershire, for the manufacture of um, uh, syringes and precision tubing. Um, But production of flat glass ceased in 1976 and at the Chance Brothers. Um, so it ended more than 150 years of, of glass production in Smethwick. Um, uh, rationalisation of Pilkington and a management buyout um, reverted the plant in Malvern to private, private ownership. They still have the name um, and uh, they're called now Chance Glass Limited. Um, but they did retain the logo of Chance, which was actually my grandfather's signature, which is rather nice. <laughs> oh, so beautiful. The, so your grandpa has not only lighthouses, but his signature lives on yeah, with the Chance Brothers. <laughs> but the, the, the plant in Smethwick is now rather a sad ruin um, and needs, um, you know, needs this serious renovation. Um, but going back to... Um, Look, I don't really know what happened, but I think probably there was competition, um, probably possibly coming in from the from the um, Eastern Bloc European countries where glass was developed. But it was it was a shared um, manufacturing process. So you know, once once Chance did it, then every Tom, Dick, and Harry would have done it. Um, but I don't I don't know the history of why it stopped. Um, other than probably competition, probably competition. I'm not quite sure, not quite sure. I can understand the pivot to, you know, more complex 
manufacture of, you know, syringes and whatnot that I imagine is a bit harder yeah. than plate glass. And I'm, yeah, it'd be quite interesting to understand, you know, why that pivot and, you know, the reinvention of the types of products they make almost didn't, couldn't save them in the end. Yeah. I, to be honest, I, I don't know. Um, I, I know that the, the, um, the history, the archives and all of those have been maintained. And there are still people alive who obviously fairly elderly now who used to work at the factory. Um, but why it's, it, why there was a sellout, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know. Could it have been something to do with the war, you know, end of possibly, World War possibly. II? Post-war, yeah, post-war, whatever happened. I mean, during the war they did, um, they were very productive. And as I say, they were building lights for or glass in um, they're, I think they're called cetylene lights uh, during the war. Um, they had a big metal factory, so a steel factory that was making, you know, and had been making uh, steel construction for some time. Um, but why that changed, uh, Amanda, I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> That's totally fine. It can remain one of the mysteries of, um, <laughs> yeah. of history. To be discovered. To be discovered, yes. Maybe for yeah. the next uh, yeah. next series <laughs> we can investigate yeah. the Chance Brothers specifically. Um, yeah. You mentioned the uh, the Chance Trust. Um, yes. What, what is the purpose of the trust? You know, what does it do? Um, well, prime, um, I'd have to check exactly on what their purpose is, but it, it's it's the site of the factory in, in uh, Smethwick, which is a suburb of, of uh, Birmingham. So that site is, I, I think it's, I don't know who it's owned by, but it's either managed or looked after in some way by the Chance Trust. And they're trying to develop it, as I mentioned earlier, into a, into a museum um, as part of the industrial history of Birmingham. The next project on my little list is to try and get... Um, um, some Australian lighthouses involved in a hookup in some way. I'm not still quite sure of the actual logistics, but for the Commonwealth Games in 2022, because um, they are being held in Manchester, uh, sorry, in Birmingham. And uh, of course, that's where Chance is. And there's, there's a, because there's going to be so much activity in the, in the city of Birmingham, um, then the Chance uh, site will become a tourist attraction and um, we're just trying to put together a link up with lighthouses around the world possibly with a family member so i do with these 20 cousins who i mentioned earlier these are first cousins um we do have a quite a wide spread around the world south africa canada brazil australia new zealand england etc um, so we're just working out the logistics of, of how we put that together. People who you can connect with. I mean, they're all they're all lighthouse nerds, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, no, I think they term themselves ferrophiles, but I like the, uh, yeah, the lighthouse nerds. I'm makes sense. Ferologists. Ferologists. Yes, you've got to call it properly. Um, <laughs> but it's about history and the romance and connection and stories and like with any history, um, you know, that's going to die unless it's maintained. So maintaining it, telling the stories, taking photographs, you know, producing things like you're doing with the, with the podcasts. I mean, that all 
that all ensures that it's uh, that it's retained, and that's what we need to do. As uh, Denise Schultz says, I'm not sure if you know Denise, but she um, used to be, I think, the president of Lower. She, her catchphrase is, uh, and I imagine this is quite common across the lighthouse community, is keep the light burning. So whether yes. that's, um, you know, metaphorically or, you know, actually in, in reality, I think it's. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, I mean, a lot of the lights are still used. It's just that they're now not, you know, they're, they're um, LED lights. They've lost know, the people by, element. By, yeah, run by electricity and a computer. Um, yeah, um, but the, the lights, the lights is definitely used. I'm, I'm a, I haven't sailed for a while, but I'm a sailor, and um, sailors will definitely use lights. Um, you know, to, to get into into Port Phillip Bay, you you line up the lights, and where are those lights? They're on Grandpa's lighthouses. <laughs> <laughs> it's helping you even to this day. Um, Thank you, Mary, so much for your time. It's been a pleasure interviewing a member of the Lighthouse Royal family and I'm sure people will be uh, enlightened, for lack of another word, by what they've learned. Well, that's very sweet of you and thank you so much for for your time and I'm looking forward to hearing hopefully an edited version. (laughs) (laughs) I will do my best, not a problem, Mary. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Amanda. Talk soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. It was so interesting hearing about um, how they started off just making glass plates and smaller items. It seems like a big jump to go from making a plate to making metre-high lenses that project light 30 kilometres out to sea. It's um, crazy jumps. I love that evolution of glass and its usage. I love that imagery you've just described going from small to beautiful, complex work. As I say, from little things, big things grow. They do say that. It does lend more weight to the whole art of the entire lighthouse world, in particular the lens. I think um, knowing more about the history behind how they were made and everything just makes you appreciate them more. Definitely keen to go back to a lighthouse and have a better appreciation now that I yeah know more about the Chance Brothers and how important they were. I didn't realise one could be so passionate about glass, but I think after listening to that interview, it's changed my whole mindset. I agree. agree. We'll never look at glass the same. Thank you, firstly, to Mary Isles, our queen of light house lenses. Thanks, of course, to my co-host and resident engineer in training, Lucy Della. Up next, we shift tack to the maintenance men who kept the lights running with Mark Sheriff, OAM, and Lance Wilson. Until then, here are some extra tidbits on a particularly famous glass table in Melbourne and a second-hand lens. Thank you for listening. Manchester Unity Building, um, built in built in just um, at the time of the Depression. It's a 12 or 13-storey building. Um, and to cut a long story short, the idea of the builders and the developers was that they would employ uh, local builders and local tradespeople to, to build this, this building in, in Melbourne. Um, and uh, because of the Depression, apparently there used to be, you know, men used to stand in line every day to get work on the site. Um, and they tried to use as many local materials as they possibly could. On the 
I think the eighth or the eleventh, I think it was my, I can't remember the floor number, but there was to be a boardroom um, with a boardroom table. Uh, but they couldn't find a glass manufacturer in Australia who could make the glass for this boardroom table. So it was a glass topped, uh, very big table. It's, I think, six meters long. Um, so Chance made the glass for the table. And that table is still there, and I visited it, and it is one sheet of plate glass that was imported um, and taken into the building whilst the building was still being built. It was taken in by crane from the outside, so it was in effect dropped into the building because there was no way they could get it up some stairs or in a lift or whatever. Um, no wonder and, it's still there. I imagine it'll be a hard ask uh, to get it out of that building. Oh, it's, 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 and as, as I say, I, you know, I went to see it and I just thought, oh, my God, this is this is another little piece of history, which was so exciting. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned... A particular lighthouse at Rotnest, and there might yeah. be a particular story about Rotnest Lighthouse. Would you be able to share that with us? Well, Rotnest is kind of interesting. I, if, I suppose Cape Lawn's a pretty major lighthouse along our coast, and I don't want to upset anybody by sort of picking favourites, um, but another major one would be Rotnest. Um, and it's actually had – well, there's two lighthouses there now – but the, the the biggest one, which I have to look after, is Wanjamup, which is 38 metres tall and it, or high, and it's in the middle of the island. Um, but that sort of, I suppose, with the colony set up in the late 1820s 18, and 1830s, you had ships coming into a pretty dangerous area. South of Rottnest, there's lots of reefs and atolls. So they decided that they needed to put a lighthouse at Rotnest. So they actually built the first one in 1851. It was completed. They started in the 1840s. Um, it took them quite a few years to actually build it. It's got a bit of a sad history, but because Rotnest became, I suppose, by the 1840s, a place where they used to take the Aboriginal people from different parts of Western Australia. It was like a prison. So they actually had the prisoners build a lot of the lighthouse. Um it was uh, about 20 metres tall. And so that operated from 1851 to about 1896. So in, uh, just before 1896, they decided that they wanted a taller, more powerful lighthouse. So they replaced it in 1896 with a 38-metre high um, limestone lighthouse. That was um, operated... Um, a six-week six kerosene lantern from 1896 to 1936. And then 1936, they got electricity. But it was right up until 1986, it did have lighthouse keepers. But it's a pretty major lighthouse. Um, but they also built a second lighthouse at Rotnest. Um, and that's got an interesting link to Kate Lewin because when they were building Kate Lewin Lighthouse, they weren't designing it. Because of international shipping, they were going to have the existing lighthouse with the white light that you would see 40, 45 kilometres out to sea. But we also had lots of coastal steamers that used to just go along the coast of Western Australia because highways weren't so good then. So a lot of ships used to go to the Pilbara, the Kimberley, and then down around the south coast, coastal shipping. So they were going to build a second light at the back of the existing Lewin light. 
they were going to build two lighthouses together and there'd be a lower red light so the smaller coastal ships could come closer to the shore and at 20 kilometres out, they'd see the red light of Lewin and go, well, we cut the corner, we're saving time. And the big ships would use the white light and they'd see that 40, 45 k's out, wouldn't get closer. So you'd have the two lights used by different sorts of ships. And they decided that they wouldn't put the red light in the lower lighthouse because the big ships would cheat. They'd think, oh, we can cut the corner, we'll use the red light to navigate that, but we'll put lives at risk. So they didn't... Um, build that second tower, but what happened was they didn't make that decision until they started to build um, the foundation for the lower tower. So they stopped building the lower tower and then being sent from England was all this expensive lens and clockwork equipment for that red light. So it ended up in Fremantle. They decided not to build the lower light and the government were popping a bit of flack about spending lots of money on infrastructure and then all of a sudden they've got this expensive lighthouse equipment with no use. Uh, and then just after that, there was a shipwreck. I think it was called the Duke of York off Rottnest and they decided they needed a second light that would be seen by ships coming from the north towards Rottnest. So the, uh, the light that was going to be at Cape Lewin was put on Bathurst Point, the second light lighthouse. So uh, Rottnest is interesting because it's got the two lighthouses, but it's got one that has equipment that was originally designated for Cape Lewin. So, um, but that lower light, Bathurst, is operated by the state. By I'm not sure if it's probably not the Port Authority, but the state, and then Amsterdam look after the big lighthouse. But I don't know the exact story behind it, but when I was doing a bit of research on Rottnest, it said when they built the new lighthouse, or the second lighthouse in 1896, the first three lighthouse keepers all committed suicide. So. Oh, what? It was so, so, um, what, extreme or they weren't ready for that kind of environment? You know, it's worse than having no furniture. Maybe they weren't expecting the extreme conditions. Yeah, so um, it's something I haven't been able to find out exactly why, but, um, yeah, there just seems to be something that I'll have to look into um, as to if there's any reason that they knew that why that occurred. But, it's yeah, because... It's, you know, that is quite often brought up about the mad keepers. Um, well, I'm not so sure. I just think people to have to be a lighthouse keeper would be have to be a different character anyway. And it was an isolated uh, where they're usually sent. So that wouldn't help if you had any um, issues about being isolated. But, yeah, that's a really, really quite a sad story that, um, yeah, they got a new lighthouse and then within a few years, um, it wasn't so good for the first keepers. Light. House. Light. 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 House. Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> I've been a long time listener. I really love your work. <laughs> <laughs>